Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm your host, Lori Barkman, founder of Small.Big. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself a business transition Sherpa. My mission is guiding entrepreneurs on ways to build value in your business and then benefit by letting it go. On this show, we spotlight the theme of transitions, not only to reward you for your hard work, but also to ensure that you look back on your succession without regret. Catch all the episodes and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to visit SuccessionStories.com to sign up for our newsletter. Here's to your success. Ben Grossman is the co-president of the Grossman Marketing Group, a 111-year-old global brand marketing agency. It's a fourth-generation family-led business that Ben co-leads with his brother. I love talking with Ben about how he entered into the family business and the transition from one generation to the next. A challenge that next-gen family business members can face is that people are watching them, wondering what they are going to do differently, better. Ben heeded early advice that hard numbers speak for themselves and to learn the business cold. Years later, Ben and his brother have done that and more by implementing a strategy to grow by acquisition, and they've bought several marketing companies. This was a great discussion about their approach to M&A, including how they source deals, build strong trust-based relationships with sellers, and how they work to integrate those companies into their organization without losing what makes them special and unique. There's a ton of wisdom for next-gen leaders and for anyone on the buy side of deals. Thanks for tuning in. Message me on LinkedIn if you enjoy the episode. Ben Grossman, welcome to Succession Stories. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. If you've listened to the show, you know that I've had some amazing guests on who are multi-generational businesses, and it's always fascinating to me to find out what happens with the company when the next generation becomes the leadership. And in this case, with Ben and your company, it's a 110-year-old company. You're in the fourth generation, and you're co-CEO with your brother. So there's a lot to talk about there. Welcome to Succession Stories. Lori, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited for the chance to get to speak with you today. Awesome. Why don't we start? Why don't you tell me a little bit about the company and your family business? Excellent. Grossman Marketing Group is a fourth generation, 111 year old family business. We're headquartered in the Boston area and we have a number of locations around the country as well as global distribution. My great grandfather, Max Grossman, started the company in 1910. He was an immigrant from Eastern Europe, second youngest of nine children left school at an early age to help support his family. His first job was shining shoes in the East Boston Ferry Docks. And then he got a job as a delivery boy for an envelope company in Boston and then started doing some selling for them, realized he was pretty good at it, and got some credit from a supplier in 1910 and started Massachusetts Envelope Company. For the first 60, 70 years of our existence, we were an envelope printer and distributor And then the business has dramatically expanded and evolved over the last 30 to 40 years. But his two sons, Edgar and Jerry, took over the business after Max moved on to public service in the early 1940s. I can certainly speak to that a little bit later. And then my father, Steve, 
came back into the business and led the third generation. His two sisters, Amy and Mary Ellen, my aunts are also involved in the company. And then my brother, David, and I run the company now. We're co-presidents and we run the business as our dad, like his grandfather, 60 years, 70 years prior, moved on to full-time public service about 10 years ago. And that's what led us to take over the company about 10 years ago. Very cool. What's your story? What's your story about how you came into the business? I graduated from Princeton and I did strategy consulting for a, a unit of IBM for several years before going back to business school at Columbia. Uh, while I was in college and then um, post-college, I actually had started and sold a small company with a friend, was always interested in entrepreneurship and sales and marketing. While I was at Columbia, I wanted to expose myself to a number of different fields. Ultimately, I was most passionate about coming back into the family business and helping steward the company through a period of dramatic change in our industry and partnering with my brother and my dad to help make that happen. At the time, the business was about 95, 96 years old. And my brother, David, who I'm very close with, was really enjoying his time at the company and the opportunities that it had presented him and the ability to make an imprint and make an impact on a company that had been around for quite some time. So I joined the business about 15 years ago and haven't looked back. And like I, I mentioned, our dad actually ran for public office in Massachusetts. In 2010, he ran for state treasurer and was elected. And when he was sworn in in January of 2011, my brother and I you know, we sort of joke around that the, the best succession money can't buy is when your dad gets 1.2 million votes. So you know, <laughs> he, he, he moved on yeah. from the company. And, you know, although he's in, involved in an advisory capacity today, he wanted to make it pretty clear from a succession perspective that when he was exiting the business, my brother and I were in charge and not to confuse our colleagues by remaining involved. So it's been pretty clear from the beginning uh, when our dad moved on, that my brother Dave and I were running the show. Gotcha, gotcha. And so how did you prepare for that? How did you prepare for coming into the company? You know, and also, as you think about it, what worked well? And what would you do differently? The most impactful project. So when I was at Columbia Business School, I thought there was a pretty good chance that I would end up joining our business. So every class I took, every project I did, I always, in the back of my mind, looked at the work in front of me through the lens of how could this impact our family business. And I, I carried around a little moleskin notebook in the front pocket of my backpack and was constantly jotting notes for a couple of years and sharing my observations with my brother and my dad at the time. But the most impactful project that I did at Columbia was in a class called Power and Influence. It was taught by a professor, Frank Flynn, who's now at Stanford, business school. And it was a project where the student was, was given the responsibility of interviewing people and organizations that they were going into after graduation to learn how they could build relationships and develop you know, power and influence throughout that, that company or organization. So if you were going to do investment banking at J.P. Morgan, you were supposed to interview other alumni from Columbia who went to J.P. Morgan into the investment banking division to get advice on best practices and how to properly enter that group. For me, it was a little bit different. I interviewed my brother and I interviewed several other alums 
who had gone into family businesses themselves to try to get advice on what they thought I should do and best practices that they had seen. And so, you know, for example, one of the best pieces of advice that I got was to try to find a way to generate revenue as quickly as possible because no one can ever question your existence at an organization if you're generating revenue. And that's certainly a challenge that next-gen family business members face is that when they join a family business, people are watching them. They have sort of an X on their back and people want to make sure that that next-gen is not just going to put their feet up on their desk and collect a paycheck. But what are they going to do to better those around them? What are they going to do to protect those around them in terms of, you know, more job security and helping pave a, a clear path to the future? And so one of the best pieces of advice that I got was just hard numbers speak for themselves and to try to find a way to generate revenue. And then another piece of advice I got was just come in and be humble. You know, put your head down, learn, become an expert in the business. So when you speak, you are right. Because again, the next generation in family businesses generally have access to good education, have been pretty fortunate in their lives like like I've been. Sometimes they can come into an organization without much of a filter. And they can come and reference materials that they learned in business school or in other organizations, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's appropriate or applicable to that specific company that has been around for quite some time. So I took a lot of time to immerse myself in the company to make sure that I knew what I was talking about and that and that when I spoke, I was right. And between finding ways to generate revenue and learning the business and trying to comport myself in a humble manner, which I try to do all the time anyway, but I was extra mindful of how I would be perceived coming into a fourth generation business. A number of these colleagues had known me since I was a kid and some had even been around at the company since before I was born. I was very cognizant of how, of the image that I communicated to my colleagues. That's important. I do ask people about that. And some people say, yeah, I literally started in the basement. My office was in the basement and where they were on the manufacturing floor, you know, and they were learning the hands-on and they were, were customer facing. Having the credibility, however you build it, and in your two great examples or more, you shared a few things there, but that's super important. And I like how you, you really were thoughtful about it. What was your brother's expectation when you were coming in? Because this is your older brother. Dave's older than you, right? Correct. Yep. Dave is four years older than me. We also have a younger brother who is not involved in business. We've certainly given him the opportunity to be involved if he if he so chooses. But Dave's expectation was that I would join the business and find ways to add value. I wasn't so sure of my exact role when I joined the company. I just figured that I'd come in and find ways to help whether or not it was through sales or marketing or strategy. We ran a number of business offsite strategy sessions in my first couple of years that I was involved with, with our management team and trying to sort of envision the future of the organization. But I just wanted to come in and I wouldn't say roll my sleeves up, and, but, but it was really just become immersed in the company and just find ways to make an impact and identify opportunities within the organization to get better and improve the company while still honoring the past and ensuring that everything that was positive about the organization was maintained. 
So there was no friction when the decision was made that you would be two in a box, two leaders, you know, co-presidents, that when you have an organization that's privately held like a family business, there can be challenges with that, just like in any other company, even if it's not privately held or publicly traded, you'll see two CEOs. And I always think, oh, geez, you know, how do you define the roles? How do you get role clarity? How in the organization do people know who's in charge? My brother and I are very close. We're very different people and our skill sets are different, but they're very complementary. And although it's hard to believe, there's no sibling rivalry. His success is my success and vice versa. So our interests are aligned. You know, what that means is we want the same things. We want to grow the business. We want to have a reasonable work-life balance so we can be present for our kids. When David achieves success, I don't feel smaller for his success. I feel bigger. You know, it makes me feel incredibly happy because it's a win for our enterprise. It's a win for us. And likewise, when I have a win, it makes David feel great. You know, we never feel smaller for the other's success. It, it really enlarges each other. And so we knew that we had a, a foundation of respect and love. And if I didn't feel that way, I wouldn't have joined the company. You know, there were plenty of other excellent opportunities. I had an opportunity to go back. You know, I, I did a summer program at Goldman Sachs during business school, and I had an opportunity to go back full time, had an offer. And actually, what was nice about that is, um, in addition to giving me options, it helped me in a very objective way negotiate my uh, my offer with my dad. So rather than trying to say, you know, what I thought I was worth, I actually had an offer letter from Goldman Sachs of what they deemed me to be worth at that time. Uh, so it, was, it made for the entering the company from a financial perspective, pretty simple. Um, but no, I mean, my brother and I get along great. And our dad and our grandfather, Edgar, when he was still alive, they used to tell us cautionary tales about families getting torn apart uh, by issues in a family business. The example that they used to cite uh, quite often was the Berkowitz family with legal seafood, where essentially the patriarch pitted his two sons against one another to run the company. And the father chose one son and essentially tossed the other son out of the business. And it destroyed the relationship. Uh, between the sons and between one son and his father. And it was incredibly acrimonious. And in the newspaper, a lot. I remember when that happened, you know, our dad ripping the article out of the Boston Globe and having us read the article. I don't think I was more than 10 years old at the time, you know, reading the article and explaining what had happened and why that could never happen at Mass Envelope, now Gross and Marketing Group. So it was always critical to have mutually respectful family relationships and be able to make reasonably easy transitions from, quote unquote, the boardroom to the dinner table. That makes me happy. There's so many times, and I'm sure I haven't talked to enough companies where there's been family rifts that have pulled everyone apart, but I have talked to some. And it's very, it's very distressing. It's very emotional. It's, it's very stressful. And I've had others on the show that, like you, have wonderful sibling relationships the Kirche Lester company with, with the CEO and his two sisters running the company. Amazing family business, amazing family relationships. And like yours, you figured out a nice way to carve that transition path forward. So let's talk a little bit about the company itself. We've talked about your transition with your brother and your, and your dad. Let's talk about the business transition from an innovation standpoint and growth. When you came into the company, it was about 96 
years old, I think you said, and now it's 111. So there's been a number of years you've been there making an impact, which is, which is great. One of the things you and I talked about ahead of time were acquisitions, which I find really interesting and compelling. So here you are, you're, you know, 100 plus year old company, you're not satisfied with where you are, you, you're looking towards the future, you're looking for this sustainable future. How did you and your brother go and your dad, how did the family go about the strategy of looking at acquisitions and deciding which businesses you wanted to acquire? Talk a little bit about the process. Our dad, during his time running the company, and he was president of the business from 1975 until 2010. So for you know 35 years, he ran the business. Uh, for the majority of that time, he ran it with his father, our grandfather, Edgar. And then for the last about uh, 10 years, uh, he was, um, you know, he, he ran the business on his own. And then my brother, David, was involved in the business for much of that last 10-year period. Um, so before we got to the acquisition, and so during that time, he made a number, he made several acquisitions himself. So it wasn't like the strategy that we envisioned over the last 10 years was, was totally new. But what my brother and I did when we took over the business, you know, what our, what our dad used to say and what we firmly believe is that our most important asset that we have walks in and out of the door every day, our people. And when our dad moved on to become state treasurer of Massachusetts, my brother and I wanted to create an environment where people felt empowered to uh, share their ideas, speak their mind, point out issues with the business that might not be so good that we could improve upon and get their feedback and ideas about what potential markets we might want to enter or regions we might want to tackle, potentially either through acquisition or strategic investment. So what my brother and I actually did when we first took over the business uh, in 2011 uh, there's an HR review process that some companies use. It's called start, stop, continue. And we flip that on its head. And instead of doing start, stop, continue reviews of colleagues, you know, meaning what should someone start doing that would be beneficial? What should they stop doing that's really detrimental to their performance? And what should they continue doing in order to reinforce positive behaviors? We flip that on its head and asked every colleague in our company, regardless of the position they, they were in, to do a start, stop, continue review of Gross and Marketing Group. And then once they had time to do that, we actually had uh, two-to-one personal meetings with every employee in the company. So that my, my brother, David, and I met with each colleague over a period of months, getting people's advice on what should our company start doing that we weren't doing, what should we stop doing that was potentially negative or detrimental, and what should we continue doing? You know, we sort of made a joke that after... 101, 102 years in business that we must be doing something right as well to get to that point. And we had a number of those conversations with, uh, with every colleague. And out of that came certain ideas. And some of that was involving new markets and new regions. So after, so this, this is now 2011. And we just started doing industry outreach, uh, networking with owners as well as uh, with brokers and intermediaries. And it's just, it's, it's just sort of built, built upon itself. You know, we did our first acquisition um, in our quote unquote administration, I think in about 2013. And then we did our next one in 2015. And 
it sort of accelerated from there. Uh, we did we did a couple earlier in, in 2021, and the the acquisitions are all different. You know, some are to get into new markets or regions. Some are almost acquire. You know, bring on new talent. Uh, some are you know bring on you know, client base, and some are to help owners transition where they don't necessarily have family in the business. They want to find a way to monetize their asset and protect their legacy and their people. Uh, the first acquisition we made, I sat across a lunch table from the owner of that, of that company. And she looked at me and said, you know, there are two things that matter to me in this, in this uh, potential transaction, Ben, that my legacy and my people are protected. And I looked back across the table at her and I said, Sally, uh, I, I guarantee that. And you know, all of her colleagues, but one made the transition. One, you know, chose to take a job closer to home, but everyone else made the transition. And a number of them are still with us close to a decade later. And it's really important to us when we make acquisitions to build incredibly strong and trust-based relationships with those owners. And it's not only does it help, um, not only is, there, is it the right thing to do, but you get better results out of it. And two of the most recent transactions we've actually done came as references and referrals from owners that we had, um, that we had done acquisitions with already. So it's, it sort of builds upon itself. There's some really interesting things about what you shared there, Ben, because the fit, of course, is where it starts and you're trying to find the right business but then there's these other aspects, right? And especially for an owner, if their name is on the door, their identity, their legacy, that's important to them. A lot of companies say their employees are like family and how they're treated and the new organization matters to them. So this building trust and building this relationship during a time when it's actually quite transactional, right? <laughs> how do you, what's the juxtaposition of that? we just try to do the best we can. You know, it's, it, look, it is about the numbers and we want to make sure that we get, you know, good return on invested capital and we can see reasonable cash flows, but it's also just about uh, trust and relationships because our, our business, you know, it's, it's all about people and creating environments for our colleagues where they feel safe you know, working with us and where their best selves are reflected in a work environment. And we try to convey that to owners, you know, prospective sellers of their companies that, you know, we, we try to run a business. Look, we might, we, we certainly do plenty of things uh, wrong and we're not a perfect uh, organization, but we, we can make that commitment to them that their trusted colleagues and sometimes their family are in the, those businesses that we acquire. Uh, they will, be treated with respect. We try to treat our colleagues this the same way we'd want our family members to be treated in a workplace, just with dignity and respect and honesty at all times. You said you're working with brokers and intermediaries sometimes. Can you talk about the role of advisors from the buy side engagement? We've worked with some buy side advisors in our industry niche. Uh, who have uh, relationships on the ground and have a pretty good sense of uh, appropriate multiples. Oftentimes, we are uh, working, uh, when we're buying a company, the seller's working with an advisor or broker, um, and we have a lot of interactions with them. 
one of the most recent acquisitions we made um, earlier this year, a company PCI Creative Group in Connecticut, their uh, broker, uh, we had crossed paths with them year, years ago and they knew us. They knew our uh, company reputation, our family reputation. And when we reached out to them about the opportunity, we weren't um, just a random buyer off the street. We had some credibility and that helped smooth the path to making that um, acquisition possible where they made a warm introduction to the sellers and they, they vouched for us and said, we, you know, we know this family, we know who these people are and they're good people. They keep their promises. And whenever we are in, um, in, uh, negotiations or sort of the introductory phase of, um, you know, meeting a prospective seller, we always say to them that if you'd like to speak with any, uh, former owner that we've, uh, that we've done a deal with, we're happy to connect you with any one of them because, you know, we, we feel very confident about the, about how they, you know, they'd report the transaction process. You know, we try to, you know, we try never to have a check be late and, um, you know, and, and again, we try to do our best to keep our promises and, uh, I, I, you know, they might, they might sometimes sellers might be able to get a, a few dollars more selling to a different, um, a different bot buyer, but we're confident that when they sell to us, they are working with partners who will look them in the eye, keep their promises and, um, you know, have it just be built completely on respect and, and trust. And it's worked. That's awesome. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to integrating these companies? You've done seven acquisitions, so that's a lot. And you have all these people, all these processes, systems. How do you bring it all together? That's really hard and it's complicated. But generally what we do, and, and, and again, like I said before, we're not perfect. We certainly make plenty of mistakes. But the good thing is with more reps and more uh, chances up up to bat, we get better and we get more practice. So what we generally do at the outset of a of a integration is we put everything in a giant spreadsheet of all the various tasks that are required to get um, that business integrated, and some of them are are really big, like HR related and employment agreement related um, responsibilities and ensuring you know, client contracts are transitioned and. And those communications are very smooth, but then there are very tiny, small things like making sure their email signatures get changed and uh, making sure you transition the ownership of domain names. So there's all, all types of tasks, big and small, but we try to document every single one of them in a big spreadsheet. We assign those tasks to various members of our team, and we basically have a big, a big dashboard of what's going on, what the current status of every single one is to ensure that nothing slips through the cracks. That's very detail oriented. I love that. <laughs> I can visualize this giant spreadsheet. What about some of the bigger themes around people and the owners themselves? Do you tend to have a separation at close or do they stay on as a consultant or do you do earnouts? What's your typical arrangement? So great question. I'd say that we don't have a cookie cutter approach every deal is slightly different. Some, some deals that we've done, the owners are still involved in the business um, many years later. And then some deals we have done, the owners have made very clear 
hey, we'll be involved for a few months at, uh, around a transition. But then other than maybe bouncing a uh, question off us over time, you know, we're, we're, we, we want to retire. And then some things are in between, you know, a few year earnout or a few year contract. Um, so what we try to do in every one of these transactions, we try to listen to the needs and desires of that prospective seller to understand what exactly they want. Sometimes they don't know exactly what they want and we right. try to help them right. get to that point, either, you know, with, you know, us or their advisors help them, but we try to listen as closely as we can and build, uh, deal structures that try to get as close as possible to addressing those needs and desires. That's probably what's helping make your deal not only successful to get to close, right? Some deals don't make it, as we all know, but getting it to close and then successful beyond that. I'm assuming that also helps reinforce the philosophy that you shared around you know, building the trust and relationship because you're demonstrating through the process of really hearing them and, and trying to come up with a solution that meets their needs. Absolutely. And many deals don't get to, don't, don't close. You know, we, we see a lot of opportunities now, just given that we've been a, we're a known buyer that um, has had a successful close rate. So we see plenty of opportunities either direct from sellers or uh, through their advisors and, uh, you know, we, we, we have a ton of respect for brokers and intermediaries. They do a lot of work and a lot of heavy lifting. And so, you know, we, we are constantly in touch with them, you know, th- uh, with calls and, and emails and building relationships with them. So if and when opportunities crop up, we might be one of the first uh, people they show that opportunity to because they know that we're a real buyer. Uh, we have the ability to, when we make an offer, we have the capital behind us to make that deal possible. And more importantly, because we have a track record of, of doing it, um, you know, the, the deal value is generally um, you know, larger over time when the company is integrated into a company that has uh, robust capabilities, technology capabilities, e-commerce, pick-pack fulfillment, um, robust finance office significant client service organization that's highly trained. So all of those resources that we can bring to bear, coupled with our track record, help us, um, you know, reflect better upon, you know, we, we, I think we generally make the brokers intermediaries look good because we're a legitimate buyer that can, that we're, we're serious. And we, we look at plenty of opportunities and, you know, many of those we don't, um, you know, we don't take beyond the initial, you know, call or uh, reviewing some high-level financials. But then when we dig in deep, I'm very fortunate that, you know, our, C- our CFO is a CPA and, you know, we, we try to analyze the numbers, try to figure out how that organization would look financially within our organization and then how that organization would look from a people perspective and from a client service perspective within our company. And so we try to look at kind of each of those facets to ensure that we're not missing anything and that we're, uh, we're trying to think about what the, you know, what could go wrong. Um, and, but also what, what could go right. And, and, you know, if we, if we focus on the positives while being cognizant of the risk factors, generally the outcomes are, are pretty good. So sustainability is 
part of your DNA in your company. When I talk to multi-generational CEOs, sometimes they use that word in terms of to the next generation. They want the company to sustain its future. They want it to be an ongoing concern. They're thinking really long-term. In other cases, sustainability might mean being careful about the environment and being sustainable with resources. And so this word's really interesting in your case because I think it's it's definitely both. So I want to talk about sustainability. You call yourself a sustainability thinker. What does that mean? Thank you for asking. I appreciate it. So certainly, like you said, we think about sustainability just from a how can this business live on potentially beyond us? My brother and I are, are very aware that we are responsible for stewarding an 111-year-old fourth-generation business. Um, we have a lot of responsibilities in terms of uh, keeping you know, many people employed, and uh, we feel a you know, responsibility to their families and doing the best we can there and trying to give the next generation in our family also the option if, if possible, to get into the fifth generation. But around sustainability from an environmental perspective, I've just been deeply involved in sustainability-related causes and environmental-related projects for close to 15 years. And um, I, we've actually done some pretty fun and innovative things in our industry. So our main business line is branded merchandise, promotional products, some people call it swag. And what we've noticed over time is that when companies rebrand or get acquired, um, oftentimes obsolete merchandise is created, you know, where old logos, old marketing messages and items end up going potentially into a landfill, not because the, the customer doesn't care about the environment, but just because they're busy, you know, trying to rebrand or work towards that acquisition. And there's a lot of extra stuff. And so I tried to marry our industry knowledge and expertise with our interest in sustainability. And a couple of years ago, launched a project called Swag Cycle. And Swag Cycle, website swagcycle.net, it's a platform to help take that obsolete merchandise and try to find the next life for it. So we have a nationwide network of charitable partners where we uh, pair those items uh, with a worthy charity like Dress for Success, United Way. Boys and Girls Clubs, Delivering Good, among others. Uh, but then if a company has determined that the items need to leave the marketplace and can't live on, we have excellent recycling partners of hard-to-recycle items. Um, so, for example, the biggest product category in our space is apparel. And what we, we have uh, relationships with recycling partners where the T-shirts can get shredded and turned into things like painter's rags and uh, mattress fill and carpet pad materials and insulation. So it's it's been fun to marry the, our interest in uh, environmental causes with our um, you know with what we've seen and witnessed in our industry and try to make an impact. You know, at, at this point, we've facil facilitated nearly six hundred thousand dollars of charitable donations on the platform in about a year and a half, and we've kept about a quarter million items out of landfills, and it's been fun. That's fantastic. That's a, a wonderful cause. So swagcycle.net if people want to check that out. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about today, Ben, that you wanted to share? People often ask, you know, are you going to pressure or encourage the next generation, um, you know, the fifth generation to join the business? You know, I have two kids and my brother has four kids. And the answer is definitely not. So my grandfather, Edgar, and my grandmother, Shirley, who 
and our, and my grandmother Shirley uh, keeps us all honest. She's she's um, she's still with us, and up until about a year ago, uh, pre-COVID, she came into the office a couple days a week. She still helped um, in an accounting collections capacity, and my dad used to joke around that the I uh, you definitely don't want to owe Shirley Grossman money. Um, and, you know, but it was such a privilege to be able to, uh, sit with my grandmother and have lunch with her in the office, um, most weeks for the last, you know, f- close to 15 years of my life, which, um, it's a, a significant privilege that most people don't, don't have. Um, but my grandfather, Edgar and, and, and grandmother Shirley's philosophy, they, they generally said something like, you know, the business is always going to be here as an opportunity. And if you want to come into the business and want to work hard, the business opportunity is there. But you should go do what your heart tells you to do. And you should follow whatever your career path is and whatever you do. And this is sort of this is like a quote that we've heard, you know, as long as it's something meaningful and productive, mom and I will be supportive. And I think that philosophy of wanting our kids to follow their passions, whatever that is, whether or not that's in academia or government or public service or business or law or some other, uh, or, or medicine or some other field, we want them to do where whatever that, whatever they want to do, that they'd be a productive member of society and where their best selves are reflected. But ultimately, if they chose to come back and work with me or work with my brother, um, and become that next generation in the business, that would be incredible. Um, you know, it's no, it's no coincidence that both my brother and I chose to come back into the business. You know, we viewed it as an opportunity to be entrepreneurial while also building on a multi-generational family legacy. And, you know, we're certainly the great beneficiaries of some you know, visionary business people who gave us this platform. And, you know, we've tried to harness that to build on that legacy. That's beautiful. I like it a lot. If people want to connect with you, Ben, what's the great way to reach you? I'm on Twitter sometimes. Uh, my handle is at B-I Grossman, B-I-G-R-O-S-S-M-A-N. I also have a uh, personal website, bengrossman.info, with a little bit more information, a little bit of writings I've done about family business and sustainability, among other things, and um, you know some summaries of some of our acquisitions and you know, press coverage of those. And if people would like to connect and uh, learn more or, or chat offline, especially, um, you know, folks who are, you know, thinking about joining their family business, thinking about being that next gen um, and want to bounce ideas off me, I'd, I'd be happy to connect. Oh, that's a great opportunity. So thank you for offering that. And let's just close. If you have a favorite saying that you'd like to share, anything about the mantra about leadership or entrepreneurship? So I don't necessarily have a favorite saying, but a quote that sticks in my mind. So I've talked a lot about my family and about my dad who ran the business for, for many years and has pursued public service. I haven't talked about my, my mother. My mother, Barbara Grossman, uh, is a theater historian, and she's a, a tenured professor at, uh, at Tufts University. And, um, you know, she's a theater historian. I've, I've seen plenty of uh, plays and musicals with, uh, with my mother over, over the years. Um, but you know, when I was probably in high school and like, I think a lot of, uh, you know, high school students struggle with, uh, self-doubt or questioning themselves. And, you know, she, she gave me this quote from Shakespeare's measure for measure. And the quote goes something like this, our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. And essentially what that means is 
you know, if, if you doubt yourself and you don't try, you will not succeed because you will then lose the good that you could win by trying. And so I think that is applicable to entrepreneurship and, and business in terms of uh, trying to take risks and, and, and affect change and, and you know, try to innovate. But it can really be relevant to any field of study. You know, that if you don't try, you're not going to, you're not going to do and have any success. And, you know, I, that, that, that quote definitely, um, I think at one point my, my mom actually printed that out and put it in a, a picture frame and put it on my, my desk in my, my room at, at, uh, at home, uh, where I grew up, but you know, it certainly stuck with me. And I think it's, it's pretty applicable to a lot of different, uh, courses of study and fields. That's a beautiful quote. So it's a great place to end. Don't lose the good. You can win. Ben Grossman, thank you so much for coming on Succession Stories today with me. I really appreciate it. Lori, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, the potential net proceeds of a transaction, and your financial needs after you leave the business, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand these numbers, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Take the next step by requesting an initial meeting to begin planning for your business transition and strategic exit today. Request a call with me by visiting smalldotbig.com. That's smalldotbig.com. I look forward to speaking with you.